Welcome to MD Notify, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufjuk, and today we're going to be talking about acute pain management. Joining us, we have Dr. Nadine Najjar, who is a future pediatric intensivist. Thank you, Dr. Najjar, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I think we have a really good episode lined up today. We're going to talk about a lot of important things and a lot of very useful things. You know, we spend a large portion of our intern year and our clinical years as medical students thinking about how to manage patients' pain. And I think that as a patient, this is one of the things that is the most important to them in terms of their experience in the hospital and how they feel we're doing kind of managing them overall. So uh, we are going to talk about non-opioid pain medication, and we're also going to talk about opioid pain medication, both in an oral form and in an IV form. Uh, We will have a future episode where we talk about PCAs, how to start them, how to manage them. So that is coming up. But first, let's talk about how we measure pain in a pediatric population. Yeah, and I think the one of the most important things to consider first when thinking about assessing pain is the age of the patient. So um, a large percentage of our patients are not able to speak to us and express their degree of pain. And we have different scales that we use for different age groups. So for example, for our infants, uh, we have something called the FLAC scale, which stands for face, legs, activity activity, cry, and consolability. It's a score that's rated out of 10, and this gives us some idea of how much pain our infant um, population may be in and um, how we're doing in terms of pain control. Mm -hmm. So the nurse will actually be at the bedside, and they'll kind of tally up those physical cues and come up with a number, right? And we can use that number to, to administer pain medication. Exactly. Yep. And then for our school-age children, we have something called the FACES scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the FACES scale is really cool. We use it in, just like you said, school-age children. So usually they're around the age of four, five, six. Not quite old enough for you to be able to, you know, directly ask them to rank their pain at a, on a scale of one to ten, but certainly able to verbally convey exactly how they're feeling. And so the nurses at our institution will actually have a series of faces on their badge. And of course, zero is like a happy face and 10 is a very sad face. And there's a series of faces in between. And the child will be able to look at those faces and then tell you which one they're feeling at that time. Um, Each of those faces is associated with a numerical value. And so just like in the FLAC scale, for these school-age children with the faces scale, you do wind up with a numerical value out of 10 you can kind of use that to um, titrate your pain control. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, moving on to our older patients, maybe some of our adolescents who are having pain issues, we use the numeric scale. Um, So we'll ask them to rate their pain on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being um, very minimal pain and 10 being the worst pain they've ever experienced. And as you can imagine, this is much easier to use in patients that can easily communicate with you and easily speak to you about these things. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. If you ask a toddler what the worst pain is that they've ever experienced, (laughs) you might get some interesting answers. Exactly. So so this is why we use the numeric scale pretty much exclusively in our teens and young adult population. 
So before we start talking about the way we treat pain kind of as a blanket therapy, what are some things we want to think about, you know, when we're first approaching a patient who's coming to us with a chief complaint of pain? Yeah, one of the main questions we want answered is, where is the pain? And can we target a root cause of the pain? Sometimes, you know, for example, if someone is dealing with abdominal pain, that could mean a whole slew of things is going on. That could be constipation, um, that could be gastritis, that could be, you know, spasms that a patient's dealing with. Um, And there are specific treatments uh, that can help better that pain specifically. Um, And actually, in some of those situations, our uh, standard pain um, management medications that we have in our back pocket would make things worse. For example, if you have a patient who has constipation and you gave them an opioid um, for their pain, that could actually make things worse. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. You don't want to backslide your patient and you really want to think about like what, where is this pain coming from? And are there things that I can do to actually resolve the root cause of the pain as opposed to just kind of treating it and moving on with some sort of like blanket therapy? Sorry. If you're dealing with a different cause of pain and you think you might need to use, um, you know, one of the medications in your tool belt, um, we have a lot of options, right? Mm-hmm. We do. And typically in pediatrics, especially, we start out with non-opioid medications. We want to treat the pain with the least invasive, least side effect um, medication. And oftentimes we land on things like acetaminophen, ibuprofen, other NSAIDs like Ketorolac. Acetaminophen and ibuprofen we've covered in a previous episode, but I, I would like to touch on a couple of the other NSAIDs particularly the oral NSAIDs, we have a couple of different options. Mm-hmm. So the most common oral NSAID that I would say that we use probably second to ibuprofen would be naproxen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we use that a lot for MSK pain, right? Mm-hmm. MSK pain, uh, maybe inflammatory pain as well. I've seen it used there. Um, it's a little bit longer acting. So it's actually dose Q12 rather than Q6, which is how ibuprofen is dosed. So that can be a really helpful medication. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then a couple other more selective oral NSAIDs are Celecoxib, which goes by um, Celebrex, and Meloxicam, which goes by Mobic. Both of those are selective specifically against COX-2, which is nice because it's a little bit easier on your stomach. So it causes less gastritis. Both of those medications are classically a little bit stronger than ibuprofen, um, and they're also dosed a little less frequently. So those are just some things to keep in mind when you're thinking about moving on to one of those alternative options. A much more common NSAID that we use is Ketorolac, right? We use Mm -hmm. that very, very often in the inpatient setting. Yeah, yeah. So um, Ketorolac, also known as Toradol, is actually an IV NSAID, um, and we can also use that Q6, which is similar to our ibuprofen dosing. Um, Generally, we would use this in um, more severe cases of pain. Uh, The only, 
you know, concern with use of Toradol is that there is a risk of, you know, GI irritation, GI bleeding, as well as renal injury. Um, so we limit our patients to five days of Toradol. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually when we order this, uh, we'll put in the um, like administration comments that we will limit our patients to only have um, five days worth of doses during, um, you know, a particular hospitalization. Mm-hmm. And I will add, I think a lot of kids that we put on Toradol will also order them if they're on scheduled Toradol for something to protect their gut, like Pepsid. And if they're on it scheduled for a couple of days, I might be inclined to check like a creatinine level and just make sure that everything looks good. Absolutely. Completely agree. Our next kind of class of medications that we have available to us are opioids. And um, these can be given orally or IV. So just to start with oral, there's a lot of great options there. And actually, you can give oral opioids alone or you can give them in combination with acetaminophen. Yeah, and I think that's really important to remember. We touched on this a little bit in our Tylenol versus ibuprofen episode, but the fact that acetaminophen is in a lot of these combination medications is a fact that can often be missed by families. And so when you're giving this medication in the hospital, it's one thing, but if you're giving a combination opioid medication with acetaminophen at time of discharge, it's really good to remind them that this is a medication that has Tylenol in it and that you don't want to double dose um, with regular Tylenol when you go home. I also think that when you're using tier-based pain management, it can get a little complicated because if you have already gotten Tylenol, uh, it may be easier, in my opinion, to get just a straight oral opioid, something like oxycodone, because then you're not running that risk of double dosing. I don't know. Is that something that you do? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I just think if you're going to give a combination of an opioid and acetaminophen, you have to be really careful about how much Tylenol you're giving with that combination medicine and also how much Tylenol you're giving in addition to that. So I tend to agree with you. In my practice, I generally give um, opioids alone if I'm going to give them. And just to be more specific, the type of oral opioids that we're referring to, oxycodone, of course, you can give it alone, um, and it's just oxycodone. There's no acetaminophen in it, Uh, but you can give oral opioid combinations. Specifically, those are things like Norco, which is acetaminophen hydrocodone, Lortab, which is also acetaminophen hydrocodone, and then Percocet is acetaminophen and oxycodone. A lot of um, good options that can be given orally, but sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, we have patients who are in so much pain that the oral medication just isn't really cutting it. And um, the good news there is that we do have uh, many options for IV pain management, specifically IV opioid. Mm -hmm. I will preface this, though, with if you're going to start a patient on IV opioid medications, you should always first check their MAR and make sure that they're on monitors. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the um, 
number one things that we worry about when giving opioids is respiratory depression. Um, so having a patient on monitors and um, watching for that is super important. So I uh, certainly wouldn't give an IV opioid lightly. Yes, exactly. Always keep that in mind. You want to know your respiratory rate and you want to know your pulse ox. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But the most common IV pain medicine that I use in my practice is morphine. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, That's kind of my go-to in terms of IV opioids. Um, And, you know, usually for our opioid-naive patients, we'll kind of start at a lower dose. So um, we might start at 0.05 mg per kg per dose or, you know, up to 0.1 mg per kg per dose. And that can be given, you know, every three to four hours. For our younger patients, you know, for our infants, less than six months, um, if we are, you know, trying to give IV opioids, I would go even lower than that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the infants, especially the ones who are on the younger side, they don't metabolize it as well. And so it's kind of safer to use closer to a 0.03 or a 0.04 mix per kick per dose, just because as in everything, you know, you can always give a little bit more if your pain is not well controlled, but you it's a lot harder to scale back. And so I think especially when you're starting out with your pain management, that patient's first time getting it, I always err a little bit on the lower side and then go up until I know how that patient's going to tolerate it and how it's going to affect their pain. So I think that's definitely um, important to know is just to kind of err on the even lower side for those kids who are in that six months age range. Completely agree. And on the flip side of that, you know, if you are taking care of a patient who has been exposed to opioids more regularly, uh, they may be a little more tolerant and you may need to start a little bit on the higher side. Um, But, you know, a good place to start for most patients is um, lower. Mm -hmm. Yep. That 0.05 mix per kick per dose. That's usually where I start. It is good to know. I mean, this very rarely happens to us in pediatrics where we have a kid who's on oral morphine and has never had IV morphine. Mm-hmm. Very rarely. But it is good to keep in mind that IV morphine is about three times more powerful than this oral alternative. So what you're, what you're giving when you give an IV opioid really packs a punch for sure. Um, another option that we have is hydromorphone or Dilaudid. Um, And we can also give that in the IV form. This can be better for some patients just in general in terms of how well their pain is controlled. But specifically, it can be good for patients with impaired renal function. Mm -hmm. And um, the dose for Dilaudid is much smaller (laughs) than morphine. Mm -hmm. Much, much smaller. Um, So uh, we were talking about for morphine that the dose is 0.05 to 0.1 mix per kick per dose. For Dilaudid, it's, you know, around 0.015 mix per kick per dose. Yeah, it's much smaller. It's an entire decimal point over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you're looking at your numbers, if you're switching from morphine to Dilaudid and they're much smaller, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, um, it should definitely look like that. You should have much, much tinier doses Mm -hmm. um, of Dilaudid compared to morphine. I think it's a, it's a good time to mention that, um, morphine, if you're converting morphine um, to hydromorphone, 
the conversion is actually 1.5 milligrams of hydromorphone IV is equivalent to about 10 milligrams of morphine IV. So you can kind of do that mental math. It's very different in terms of the dosing. So we talked about for infants, we do 0.01 to 0.015 mix per kick per dose. And you can kind of go up. Anyone who's over 50 kilos will usually be getting around 0.2 milligrams per dose. And if they've been exposed to it multiple times, maybe up to 0.6 milligrams per dose. Then one of our other options is fentanyl, um, which I honestly don't use very often. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah, I think we mostly use this in the ED. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason for that is because it um, comes on pretty quickly and it can come off just as quickly, um, Mm -hmm. which is useful, you know, if you're doing a quick procedure, for example, where you need pain control, or um, if you need to reassess a patient's neurostatus and you don't want that impaired, like your exam impaired, um, that's really important. Um, But yeah, we don't really use it very much on the floor. Right. We do sometimes use it in the ED um, for patients who have really severe pain before they have a PIV placed because fentanyl, what's cool about fentanyl is you can actually spray it up the nose. Mm -hmm. So you don't really need to wait for access before you get your patient's pain under control. But I agree, it's really not something we use very often on the floor. So once you're admitted to the hospital, unless you're in like a critical care setting, probably not your go-to medicine for IV opioid pain control. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in addition, I think it is important to note that in addition to all of these medications that we have in our tool belt that are kind of standardly thought of as acute pain management medicines, there are some much simpler things that we can do, um, specifically for children. We can use um, our child life friends. Um, so maybe that's something that's new to some people, child life specialists, but they are wonderful um, and can be really helpful in managing pain. Yeah, child life specialists, they go through particular training programs, and basically their specialty is they can un- explain things to children in a way that they can understand, um, like at a developmentally appropriate level. And they're also master distractors. Mm-hmm. Yes. They have iPads, they have Play-Doh, they have coloring books, they have everything. Absolutely. As physicians, we don't have that stuff. No. <laughs> Usually, you know, if a child is in pain and we walk into the room, you know, they might be a little bit scared of us. So child life specialists are um, great intermediate um, people um, that can help in, you know, relieving some of that anxiety and pain. You know, just speaking from personal experience, I've seen the success of distraction multiple times and i um, big believer in at least trying that or using that in addition to, um, you know, your standard pain management. I think it's super effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Hot packs is another one. Mm-hmm. Hot packs are great. They really work wonders, um, particularly for things like menstrual cramps or um, abdominal pain, or musculoskeletal pain. They do really, really great things, and and a lot of kids really get a lot of relief with um, hot packs. So that's another really nice conservative thing that you can kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, And we also use some topical pain management. 
Uh, one of the ones that I didn't really know about as an intern, um, but I, I do use more frequently now is diclofenac gel. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes by the brand name Volterin. You can buy it actually over the counter. And it's actually a topical NSAID. So if you have very superficial pain and you are old enough to get an NSAID and old enough to actually be able to use it, so this would be probably for kids who are at least of school age or, or above, that can be a really, really nice way to treat their pain and really target the pain control to the area where they're having that discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there are some other kind of topical options as well. There are lidocaine patches, um, which we use for similar situations, um, you know, for pain in a particular area. They can be very effective. In addition, we use, um, sometimes we use clonidine patches, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, clonidine patches we do see a lot of times, at least at our institution, when we have them started by like a pain medicine specialist or um, physical medicine and rehab. And one of the things you have to really remember is when you have a clonidine patch, A, it doesn't work immediately. It takes a long time, honestly, Mm -hmm. to get that clonidine into the bloodstream and get it to an effective therapeutic level. And B, it can affect your blood pressure. So clonidine was originally a blood pressure medication. Um, and you know, if you have a kid who has borderline blood pressures to begin with, for whatever reason, may not be your best option. Yeah. And, um, not something that you would necessarily use in the acute setting. It may, um, be for a patient who has chronic pain and is maybe experiencing acute on chronic pain. Um, but it's not what, like the first thing that you would go to for someone who's coming in for acute pain. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Muscle relaxers are another sort of adjunctive pain medication that we use. And it's kind of one of those medications that I feel like sometimes someone will order it and I'll be like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? Yes. You know, like if you have a kid who has classic (laughs) musculoskeletal pain, a muscle relaxer can be so, so helpful. Yes, absolutely agree. You can try all the other things and they don't work, but then a muscle (laughs) relaxer will, you know, do the trick. Um, mm-hmm. So the one that we typically use is cyclobenzaprine, also known as Flexeril. Um, it can be used every eight hours as needed and like can be very effective for MSK pain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do cause a little bit of drowsiness, which I think is something that we often see with almost every medication that we've talked about so far. Yes. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, but otherwise safe drug. Uh, we have a couple other medications that we sometimes use. And these are, again, medications that we often do in conjunction with a specialist, like a pain medicine specialist or a PM&R or a psychiatry or something of that nature. Um, one is SSRIs and SNRIs. Uh, the main one that I think about is Cymbalta. Cymbalta is really mm-hmm. good for chronic joint pain. Um, and, of course, it's good for mood as well. So if you have a patient who has the constellation of those two things both abnormal mood and chronic kind of aches and joint problems, um, Cymbalta may be a good option for that person. And then also we use neuropathic medications 
And um, Dr. Najjar is going to be one of our future pediatric intensivists. So it's a little bit outside the scope of this talk. (laughs) But um, we do use these medications, the neuropathic meds, quite often in the ICU. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it can be used for chronic pain. They can also be used for, you know, neuropathic pain, which is a very specific type of pain. Um, And those would be things like gabapentin, Mm -hmm. pregabalin. Yeah. Yep. The the classic patients that I'm thinking of for people who get placed on neuropathic pain medications would be people who've had like Mm Guillain-Barre or people who have had um, maybe like a traumatic brain injury and they've had some neuropathic damage or an amputation or mm-hmm. things like that. So these are not medications that you're going to give, again, to kids who are just walking off the street who are totally normal and here for true acute pain. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But I might use these in the future. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. You might use them in the future. And we should know about them. They exist. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I think that really covers a lot of our adjunctive pain medications, and we've we've really gone over sort of stepwise how we would p- manage pain in a pediatric population, starting with the root cause, mm-hmm. and then moving on to our non-opioid options, and then moving on to our oral options for opioids and combination medications, and then finally kind of going over IV opioids, mostly morphine, how we use it, when we use it, and how much to give. So thank you, Dr. Nujar, for joining us. This is a really great discussion. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, And again, this is MD Notified, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.